Hello and welcome to the RPS Pharmacene podcast, our regular podcast that takes a fresh look at the pharmacene with interesting guests from the world of pharmacy, healthcare and beyond. Now, welcome your host. Hello and welcome to the RPS Pharmacene podcast. My name is Kira Duffy and I'm a member of the English Pharmacy Board. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Paris to Donayai. You have such an interesting career. Can you tell us your journey to becoming a pharmacist? Yes, I've been a pharmacist for almost 30 years. I have a PhD in pharmaceutical science, and I also have an additional second degree in psychology. I've been an academic for almost 20 years. And before I became an academic, I worked in a range of settings, including Royal Pharmaceutical Society of Great Britain on the BNF, where I was a staff editor. I'm currently employed two days a week at the RPS, and I'm hoping, obviously, I can use this role for the promotion of science and do lots of good for our great profession of pharmacy. So what led you to becoming a pharmacist in the first place? That's a fantastic question. I think like many young people, actually, I didn't have a very fixed idea about what I wanted to do. I did know that I wanted to pursue the sciences. So a friend of mine wanted to study pharmacy and I started to look into pharmacy. And it was really that distinction between pharmacy and pharmacology. What is it that sets them apart? And understanding that pharmacy is actually a profession and it's a profession made up of a breadth of sciences was really appealing to me. I think knowing that at the end of the degree, there was also the opportunity to practice as a pharmacist was a real driver for me. So what is it that interests you in psychology so much? That's a really good question, Kira. So I completed a laboratory-based PhD and then worked as a pharmacist for five years before taking up a lectureship. And that route back into academia and my interest within academia was actually via pharmacy practice. It was via the application of my academic skills and my scientific knowledge into a different field of academia. And so to support my transition, I first completed a postgraduate diploma in psychological research methods because I realized that I needed knowledge of social psychological theory to underpin my pharmacy practice related teaching and research and also to improve the discipline itself. Now, I say I needed, this was self-driven. There wasn't anybody sort of telling me to do this. This was me, I suppose, identifying, looking at the work that my colleagues, both locally and internationally, were conducting and seeing where research within my field was going. So, for example, how do we do interviews with patients, with other health practitioners, and make sure that these interviews are backed by appropriate methodology. That was the start of my journey. And after that, there was a a little bit of a study addiction, if we can call it that. I then committed to studying part-time for a BSc in psychology. And I did that over the course of six years. That allowed me to develop an understanding of the methods but also the theory that's applicable to the practice of pharmacy. And a lot of that is, of course, scientific theory, and it draws on social psychology, and it also draws on other aspects of psychology. You've taken this non-linear, could we call it a career path, 
What do you wish you'd known as you were starting off on that path? I think life is about experiencing and life is about making mistakes and learning. So I never really think that I would want to wind back the clock and do things differently. I think having experienced life as I have makes me the unique individual that I am. But would you say you've faced any challenges in your career? Again, I think life is about developing skills to overcome those challenges. So I actually wasn't born in the UK. I came here when I was a teenager. And one of the first challenges I had was to learn the language. And throughout my career, I've made a lot of observations about the way that language is used when we interact with others at work and how misunderstandings can come about. And this is actually a great piece of learning for myself because I've managed to then use my observations in my everyday life to apply that to my research as well. So I've become very interested in analysing language and I'm working with a great PhD student called Sarah and we're looking at the application of conversation analysis. So we're looking at how do students interact with others, how do they establish rapport and how do they influence others in order to make change? We know about those deterministic psychological theories of behavior change, but how do you then apply that theory within a one-to-one interaction? And also, what is it that we can change about that interaction? One of the major areas of work I'm pursuing is the concept of medicines reuse. And medicines reuse is rather a loaded term. We all have our opinions on what it means, whether it should be allowed, what are the risks and what are the potential benefits. So we know within the UK that medicines reuse is not allowed. However, medicines reuse is allowed within controlled environments such as hospital wards. And during the pandemic, the government did allow for some medicines to be reused within hospices and care homes. My area of work focuses on looking at the barriers and also the facilitators to medicines reuse in the future within a community setting. We know that one of the greatest concerns relates to the way in which medicines are stored once they leave the secure supply chain. And the greatest worry relates to the continued stability and integrity of the products inside a box of medication. Light, temperature, humidity, agitation, and so on might impact on the physical or the chemical stability of those products. And wouldn't it be great if one day we were able to report back on those environmental conditions in order to reassure pharmacists that actually the medicines that's being brought back to the pharmacy is okay to be given out again? Why is this important? Because medicines waste costs the NHS in terms of environmental pollution. Medicines put in the toilet, down the sink or in the bin find their way into the watercourse and can affect the environment. And there's, of course, also the carbon footprint of medicines. For medicines wasted, this production, and also, for example, transport, dispensing, and so on. So if we look to the future, I would forecast that we are moving toward a world where medicines reuse is going to become more commonplace. Greece is involved in medicines reuse. America is. 
there's lots of work that we can be doing. You'll have many years of research ahead discovering how to optimise these situations. It's not a problem that we can solve overnight. One of the great things about the Royal Pharmaceutical Society sustainability policy is that it's called for more research into medicines reuse. Yeah, lots of food for thought around that. As Professor of Social and Cognitive Pharmacy, with your interest and expertise in psychology and human behaviour, can you give us any tips on how we can educate students on psychological aspects of patient compliance? You know, that's a really good question. And it was a question that I was asking more than 10 years ago. And to underpin my own teaching and my specialism, I wrote a textbook on social and cognitive pharmacy, which was a term that I coined myself. And what I noted was that while the indicative syllabus for UK accredited pharmacy courses as set by the GPHC at the time required the teaching and learning of a range of principles, methodologies, of social and behavioural sciences relevant to pharmacy, there wasn't, in fact, a textbook that specifically was written to deliver this material for pharmacy students. So I originated this idea and wrote a book detailing the relevant social and psychological know-how for pharmacy students. And I did it by writing theory chapters accompanied by case study chapters. So there were six theory chapters and then one patient case study chapter, which had 15 cases, and another one which had research case studies. And since then, one of the greatest ways that I've found we can teach students is to allow them to practice. So it's brilliant news that pharmacy courses are changing now to include many more weeks of placements. And it's this placement within pharmacy practice within patient-facing roles that's really going to allow students to apply their learning and to reflect on the experiences, the interactions that they have and that they learn from that. So I think there's so much we can do as academics to try and teach students how to, but it's not until they do that they can really illustrate and develop. And that's the value of experiential learning. With the transition we've seen during COVID, moving toward perhaps telephone consultations, video calls, do you think that that will impact the cognitive pharmacy behaviours? I mentioned earlier about conversation analysis. That's actually a really useful tool for us to be able to use within our teaching, within our practice and within our research because there are very well-known theories around how people talk to each other, what are the norms, and what are other people's expectations. So if we look at one of the theories, it's called politeness theory. It's decades old, but very relevant. Politeness theory looks at basic human needs. All of us, when we interact with others, we want to protect our own face, as we call it. And in that sense, A, we want to be liked by others. And B, we want our autonomy to be respected. Those are two fundamental aspects that we need to be mindful of when we interact with other people. So to give you an example, if you've got a patient on the telephone and you want to help them change their behavior, it's of course no good to go into 
a long-winded conversation and tell them what you want them to do because then you're treading on that principle of autonomy. And so it's about learning the skills to be able to read what the patient's response is, even on the telephone. We know hesitations are a real indicator of potential disagreement. So we can bring some of this knowledge from conversation analysis into our teaching. So that can apply to the face-to-face, to the online and to the telephone consultation. Definitely sounds like psychology is of increasing importance in all our interactions in pharmacy, especially with our patients. Can you provide an insight into your day-to-day role in research? Actually, my work within an academic setting involves research, teaching and administration, and that's pretty standard practice across academia. So in terms of teaching, of course, everybody has their own specialism. And for me, that's about interactions with patients. So can we talk about adherence? Can we talk about communication skills? And can we talk about, I suppose, some of the more complex aspects of practice? So one of the areas that I teach on is ethics and complex ethical decisions and the frameworks that exist for people to be able to make those decisions. And that's something that's of real interest to me in terms of my teaching. In terms of my research, it's about managing a breadth of different activities relating to research. So supervision of PhD students, writing grant applications, writing up research papers, peer review of other people's research, looking at other people's research ethics applications. Some of that activity, though, to do with research is driven by the REF and the way that universities are judged in terms of their research activity. So our role as academics isn't just to be producing papers, it's also to be looking at the impact of our research. So it's really hugely important to emphasise that The research that takes place nowadays within universities has to have that practical application, but rightly or wrongly, for it to count within the REF assessment framework. And again, as careers progress within academia, there is an expectation that people take on more administrative roles. So that could be convening a module, leading on the ethics element that operates within a pharmacy school and it it can include all sorts of things so for example as well as being ethics representative for my school I've also been representative on various equality and diversity committees and these have involved me in women within academia or looking at the experience of other groups that are employed within academia. So what inspired you to apply for the RPS chief scientist role? Actually, a number of things inspired me to apply. One was that I was encouraged to. And I think that's really important. I think sometimes as women, we don't necessarily put ourselves forward. But having been approached by at least three people from very different domains who asked me, to consider the role and to look at how I could apply my skills within that role was a great motivator for me to look further 
and to apply to join the organization. Now, having already worked for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, albeit about 20 years ago, as I mentioned, I knew that this is an organization that I admire a lot. And it's an organization that I want to contribute to in terms of its success. Of course, I've worked in the past with Gina Martini and no, Professor Jane Lawrence, who was chief scientist before Gino. In fact, Jane was my personal tutor when I was studying my pharmacy degree at King's College London. And Tony Moffat also was somebody that I really admire and I had also come across in my training and in my career. So to me, this was a post that was of huge importance. And once I'd been approached by others and had spent time thinking about how I could use my skills and how I could apply my skills, then it was just a matter of applying and doing my best. And actually, I've been with the Pharmaceutical Society working as chief scientist for three months now. The organization is involved in a great breadth of things. And also in terms of its ethos, it very much chimes with the way that I think about the profession and the way that I want to support the profession. So watch this space, I suppose, for lots of exciting initiatives to come and lots of areas of work that I'm involved in. One of the things I want to highlight is the opportunity to come along and meet me at the Celebration of Science event taking place on the 10th of November in the afternoon at the London offices of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society at East Smithfield and of course the Royal Pharmaceutical Society's annual conference is taking place on Friday the 11th of November. It'll be a great opportunity to meet members and others. I would love to hear about your own vision of how science can contribute to making our profession even greater. So please come along. It's um, a fantastic opportunity to learn. But also personally, I really look forward to speaking with as many people as possible. It's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. So in your career, it's been very varied. You've worked in many different roles across many different sectors. Have you had mentoring through your career? I like to see myself as quite a self-starter. However, that's not to downplay the role of others who have inspired me within my career. So people who've inspired me are strong female role models, people who haven't tried to fit the mold, women who've pursued science careers, academic careers, and people who speak their mind and are not afraid of making change. I wouldn't say that there's been one specific mentor, but actually it's been about looking at my own needs and also drawing on positive influences around me. And there have been plenty of those, of course. Can you share with us the best piece of advice you were ever given? And what advice would you give to someone inspired by your journey? Yes, of course. So great piece of advice that I've received is to look at your own achievements to inspire you. If you've achieved something, that's great. Recognize it. It's brilliant. I can tell you about a piece of advice that I receive constantly, which I don't think is actually great advice for young researchers, academics. And I stand to be corrected on this, but I stand by this. And that wrong advice is we're often told, don't publish 
small studies, don't publish small papers, go for the big publication. But actually, if you don't make mistakes, if you don't publish those smaller studies, how are you ever going to get to your BMJ publication or your Lancet publication and so on? Life is not about kind of having this ideal path and people don't suddenly land in the right place at the right time. They do it by making mistakes, by working hard and striving and I suppose getting knocked back and getting up again and continuing on. So I suppose the main advice I would give is try not to compare yourself to others. You're unique, you're an individual, and you've got to go with what you think is right for your own career. Wonderful advice, definitely worth living by. Wow, we've covered a lot in our discussion today. From coining the term social and cognitive pharmacy to politeness theory, to your interest and love of linguistics and how this impacts our reactions. We've covered psychology and how that impacts patient compliance and your journey back to the RPS from being BNF staff editor to now as RPF chief scientist. Your passion for pharmacy and for science is clear to see and the RPS are so lucky to have your expertise. Paris to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Kira. It's been really lovely talking to you. Thank you for listening to the RPS Pharmacene podcast. Let us know who you would like to see interviewed by using the hashtag RPS Pharmacene on social media. See you next time. Mm-hmm.